Welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Teresa Moses. And I'm Lisa Mercer. Authors of the Racism Untaught book and co-collaborators of the Framework and Toolkit. Thank you for joining us on our podcast, where we engage in discussions that expand on the work in our book with scholars, organizers, designers, and people who we greatly admire and are committed to eradicating racism and oppression in their own work. Today, we'll be engaging with Dr. Cheryl D. Miller about her work and the forward that she wrote for our book, Racism Untaught. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. We're here talking to Dr. Cheryl D. Miller about her work, about the forward that she wrote on our book. But first, we want to orient ourselves and recognize space, time, and culture. So I'm going to start off today. I'm recording today in Minneapolis, Minnesota on the lands of Dakota people. Um, uh, this is at a time um, when we're seeing, still seeing some of the residual outcomes of the racial awakening that happened in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. I am situated uh, in this culture as a Black queer woman um, here in a time when Black history is being attacked, uh, rights on LGBTQ people are being attacked, uh, women's rights are being attacked. And, you know, just trying to exist in this body. So I'm going to turn it over to my co-host, Lisa. So I'm recording today from Boston, Massachusetts, on the traditional, ancestral, and contemporary lands of the Wampanoag, Massachusetts, and Poconoke at a time when I'm starting, I'm starting off the academic year um, off campus and living in Boston with my family. I'm focused on learning new things and being present. I'm culturally positioned as a cisgender woman of Mexican descent, proud of my ethnically mixed race family. And I'll pass it on to you. Before we get started, I want to do a quick introduction of who the magnificent, amazing person that we are talking to today is. Dr. and Bishop Cheryl D. Miller is a designer, author, and theologian. Um, best known for her advocacy for black graphic designers in the industry. She has been inducted into the One Club Hall of Fame and is a Cooper Hewitt National Design Awardee and an AIGA medalist. And we are so thankful for you um, and your time and your space today, but not only for that, but for writing the forward to our book. And we'd like to start off actually with a quote from the forward and, and kind of ask you then to expand a little bit on that. And so um, Cheryl writes, a perfect storm of the COVID-19 pandemic stay-at-home lockdown orders in 2019, the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests gave us all a front row global view of an awakening of social consciousness and reckoning across humanity. This featured cinema streamed across my devices moment by moment. Decades ago, I had seen this exact movie, albeit at my neighborhood theater, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated. The world seemed to be in suspense, uh, it be in suspended animation, streets burned. And this is definitely a reflection of, of what happened here in uh, Minneapolis in 2020. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'd love to just kind of open that up and yeah. hear if you want to expand on that. Any? Yeah, it's been a real, real moving season. I think the only thing different um, that I, from what I faced then to now was the pandemic. And the pandemic put us uh, looking at the cinema, you know, and whether we liked it or not, whatever outlet we were looking, it's like, when is it gonna be over? You know, we're looking for the CNN, the Fox report, whatever, we're looking for, you know, how are we gonna get out of this and what are we gonna do, um, you know? I, I walked around with a ski mask on, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> how are we gonna get our food? How we... um, and so that opportunity actually put me in to the, I would say the greatest season of my performance. I'll come back to that. Um, but the playbook, I knew it was exactly because it looks like, Miller, how did you know how to do this? How did you know where we were? How did you blow up all of a sudden? you know, again, and because I'd been here and the playbook is exactly the same, okay? And I remember it and lived through it like it was yesterday. And I was able to um, both parallel and synoptic do timelines in my mind and in my heart 
Oh, I can tell you what's going to happen next. I know exactly what's going to happen next. And so, um, not that I got, you know, I look in the tea leaves, it's wisdom. Okay. And the first thing that comes is this season of reparation. And I said, okay, we've, we've experienced these, you know, I have a, I have a, you know, I, I have a saying that the television, uh, Gil Scott Heron, the revolution not be televised. No, nah, uh, uh, it's not going to be televised on Zoom. He told me it was not going to be televised. I didn't know what it was going to be. And I'm like, okay, Gil Scott, what's it going to be? You know, and now I'm going to tell you that the revolution is on Instagram and Zoom. <laughs> I'm like, really? TikTok? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but not even back then, right? Right, 2020. You know, I saw it. It's like, okay, the student protests, I've been there, Kent State. Vietnam, I'm like, I've been there. They, they murdered, they, they, and in sequence, this is one of my lectures for um, the civil rights era. I, I think it's my, when I talk about um, the 1968 uh, pushpins that, pushpins, pushpins that push back is my lecture about um, the uh, pushpin group. And so while Milton Glaser and all of them are just flourishing all over the place, oh, by the way, we're at the height of the civil rights era. Okay, and so this whole playbook, you kill a leader, then you feel guilty. What are we mm-hmm. gonna do? What are we gonna do? Okay, and the difference is mass technology and the mass media put the whole show out front. You know, back in my day, all we had was uh, channel, channel four, channel seven, channel nine back in the day that was cbs abc nbc walter cronkite and uh you know uncle walty showed us vietnam showed us the you know i grew up at a kitchen table with george wallace and um german shepherds and hoses I'm trying mm-hmm. to get dinner and the mom's little portfolio little um portable television is showing me Vietnam and German shepherds. And King, you know, King marching, you know, he's advancing through the South, you know. And um and crazy, I'm so naive, I wanna go to art school. I wanna draw pictures. Who knew? You know, my my father you know, was Negro politician and he, he he gave me a piece of advice, you know, he, I, now that I look back, he was sheltering me, but he said, you know, I'll support you in what you want to do. But if that doesn't work out, remember, you know, you've got academics and if you're going to do it, Cheryl, be the best. That's what he said. Hmm. Be the best if you're going to do it. But he didn't tell me that I had this incredible undertow of life coming out of Jim Crow and killing Martin Luther King. And the first thing they did, the minute, the minute Professor Moses, Professor Mercer, the minute they killed, I mean, literally, the minute they killed Martin Luther King, they didn't get him in the ground good. And I grew up with all of those ebony and life images of Coretta, you know, veiled and... Hmm. The minute the dominant community responded, reparations, reparations. And they came down and they scooped up, not from DC now, but they came down into New York, Philadelphia, DC. They came, they came to the urban cities and they scooped up most likely to succeed SAT tests. Or then it was PSAT tests, so your junior tests. Mm-hmm. And they gave us all. Um, opportunity to apply to school up in New England. And I knew my gifting and my interests. Okay, I'm not surprised how this all turned out. You know, I am a writer. My high school teachers told me I was a writer. They came and recruited me. Wellesley came, I would have been two, two, two classes behind Hillary Clinton. They came for me to go English lit and writing, and so did RISD. And my godmother was a painter and all I wanted to do was art. So when I look back now, you know, I'm a writer and I have something to write about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but they came down and what I didn't know was going on was 
Um, and that's why I'm so attached to a lot of RISD's work um, now because it's reflective of 50 years ago, 50 some odd years ago, the class of 1969 in this era, the Dorothy E. Hayes show, all these things were responses to they shot Martin Luther King. They killed our leader. Mm -hmm. And uh, RISD's campus went ballistic with that, with Vietnam and Kent State. This is era. They had already assassinated um, uh, Malcolm X. They had assassinated um, uh, Bobby and Robert Kennedy. I mean, Jack and Bobby Kennedy. Um, they were just coming right on down. And this is my lecture. This is all mm -hmm. going on while Rand and, and Glazer are making big time New York school and pushpins. Oh, by, by the way, this is my community. And then all of a sudden, you know, um, the advertising councils started, you know, and it's all in stuff I have. And I have a wonderful book coming out myself <laughs> where I'm just not giving you story. I'm giving you pictures. I'm giving you footnotes. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm lived history. So I was able to almost project, even down to black nationalism, mm -hmm. our hair. Oh, are you kidding? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? So the schools came down and got most likely to succeed little Negro kids. Then the, then the black nationalism movement came in. I'm black and I'm proud. James Brown, all of them. Miles Davis, black. The Temptations, everybody took Johnson products out of their hair. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, we're getting ready. We're getting ready to strip down here. Afro-Cobra movement. All this is going on. And I'm like, you know, I've seen this playbook, Professor. Nothing's <laughs> changed. Mm -hmm. And I said, Cheryl, now's your time. You've been saying the same thing. People ask me all the time. Well, now that you have a voice and now that you have a legacy, and now that you have, I said, I always had this. There isn't anything that I haven't said. The difference is the pandemic got you all listening to me. Mm -hmm. It gave you an opportunity. You didn't have anything else to do <laughs> but get on these Zoom calls. And I came back alive. The technology brought me back alive. But it's the same thing. Nothing new. I get asked that all the time. I have been saying the same thing 40 some odd years. And publishing the same thing 40, 40, 40, 40, 50 years since I started in this. Then 50 some odd years since I got on the platform in this. I was 17 years old. I was the first class to be recruited into Rhode Island from their We Demand letter. Board of Directors, we demand diversity. We demand money for our kids to go to school. We, de we demand. And they finally, you can find it on YouTube, my commencement. It took 50 years for a president. Crystal Williams, the first African-American president of anybody that had a ranked art school. Mm -hmm. And my closing comment to her after that commencement, they invited me and gave me the honorary degree from RISD. I said the class of 1969, which is represented because we're coming out of pandemic doing this, you know, doing this commencement. They came in with the hippie guitar and flower and stuff. I said, y'all stand up. It's on YouTube. Stand up. I said, if it had not been for that class, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be here today. And President Williams, you wouldn't be here today either. They demand a change. It took 50 years. It took 50 plus years. And the year you were born, I, it, it's right there recorded. I, I had gave everybody an aha moment. It's the last thing I said. The year you were born, the class of 1969, 1970, demanded that one day you would be here and that I would be here live, to be living history to tell you that we're all here because of that pivotal moment they killed Martin Luther King mm -hmm. and community, community responded. So when I see this work and I'll tell you, I, you can quote me and I'm gonna write it. I've got I've got an article coming up for October where I'm, I'm reviewing all of the books, the books that drop in October. There's so many now, but um. The trade publishing has been our worst enemy because they didn't include us. Our scholars, right. yeah, they didn't record anything. They didn't publish our books. It's not all that easy to get a trade. And you guys are, you know, the, the top ones are pick, have picked us all up. Okay? All right. Mm -hmm. The top ones have picked us up. MIT, Princeton University, Princeton Architectural. 
Okay. There's so many of us now. And that's not the way it was. That wasn't the way it was. And so my, my career and my voice along with my practice has been, oh, by the way, oh, by the way, we were there. And, and my research and my books and that, everything I write is full of footnotes because I'm just not gonna give you oral tradition and made up stories. And see, I remember things that possibly you don't even know to research because mm -hmm. everything didn't translate, you know, Google and all of that, you know, the Kindle, I think was established 1997, Google late 1992. It didn't cross over the, it, you had to live to know to go into the card catalog to go find these stories. So, you know, like the African proverb says, um, when the elder dies, so the library. So I don't need to be designing. You all need to be designing. What you all need to do while I'm in my right mind and just have a left knee that's a little cranky, <laughs> <laughs> right, is to pull out everything in the, in the card catalog I know, write as much as this story and create scholarship with solid footnotes, you know, I just don't let me tell you something. You know, you'll always see me say, um, I make footnotes. I don't compile them. You know, every now and again, I might find two or three that came up from someplace else and then I'll seam them together. No, my my work is, I, I live, I'm living to see it happen. My house is a hundred and change. I, I'm 70 years old. I've lived two thirds of this history. And I tried to make it as as I I've made it. It took me the whole journey of two thirds of my house, okay, to to live, um, and walk with these peers. They know me. There ain't no surprise when they you know they're taking. Yeah, I'm glad I can stand up, professor, and I'm taking pictures with you know, with with um with the New York crowd. And I was there. They they know I was your age, and I had my firm in New York. This is not that's this is not new, but we didn't have that kind of measure of social media or those really caring about us to make sure that our stories were told. And so this is what I'm doing. And I'm helping you guys, helping you guys by, you know, writing for you, promoting for you, pushing you on. Y'all are going to do more work than I'll, I'll ever do. But now is the time. And but I've seen the playbook up, down to the hair down to the styles, it's 50 years hip hop. You know, I did some of the first, you know, publication things for hip hop. Mm -hmm. and, and so you don't have to, only thing I haven't done is, you know, I don't, I don't design sneakers. <laughs> so, but you know, I, I've lived the history that many mm -hmm. want to write about. And so, so, so telling you these stories, so that the interview here, you know, it's a footnote interview with Dr. Miller, da 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 da, October, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, so I'm leaving this footprint off. Oh, you know what I know, so that you can do your work. And the playbook says, they killed the leader, came to reparations. Let me tell you. Let me tell you how it goes. This is the playbook. Reparation nationalism. Everybody's black and I'm proud. I'm black and I'm proud. I've been waiting for the T-shirt. I'm black and I'm better. I was there. Okay. Then it go. Then it goes into. Um, we gave you a black president. We gave you, and that is going to start whispering. See, already look. I'm like, okay, where's it coming? The the Supreme Court affirmative action. Okay. Mm -hmm. I've been there. I've been here. I'm like, okay. All right. It starts whispering away. All right. So here we are. What do we do? What do we learn from that? That's where I am, and that's how I know. I just don't know when it's all going to be over. I don't have that future date. Tea leaves don't tell me that. But I have enough to know where we are in a tra trajectory of cultural, political, and even emotional shift. Oh, let me tell you something. If I can live with, I, you know, I don't want to give you my political persuasion, but let's just put it this way. If I've lived through George Wallace, Richard Nixon, and Lyndon Johnson. So you figure that out. I can sustain myself through Trump and Biden. Because mm. I grew up on George, Richard and Lyndon. This brings me to the next question that I have, which is, um, you know, during the time 
when you were first practicing design um, and you were bringing up these issues and they were perhaps not being supported um, in the design field specifically, because you already talked about the social context, like context, like we all know it was happening. But I'm thinking about specifically you as this black woman designer, you know, where you're trying to bring up these things, you're writing uh, uh, articles like where are all the black designers like you're actually trying to bring, you know, awareness to some of these issues. And in order to begin dismantling these systems, I wonder if you can speak to that time in your life. Like, was there a frustration? Was there like, how did you get support? Like, how did you sustain the disruption and the dismantling of these systems of oppression? Well, first off, it, it started with, before I started writing, it was my own practice. And I refused. I, I think it's just the way we're made down in D.C. <laughs> Middle mm-hmm. African-Americans, they, we got a grit. D.C. folks can hand dance, crack crabs, and uh, do what they got to do. There's a grit. <laughs> okay. And I think that has a lot to do with the politics. It's central to where, you know, a lot of um, professionals and academicians, Howard University, we're cut from a very, very special cloth of entitlements and confidence. And nobody was ever going to tell me no. So I, and I'm unapologetic. You, you, you don't get in this business if you don't have a measure of gift and, and, and then be responsible to polishing it up. You know, and so humbly I submit, I was talented as a young woman, kid. And I wasn't gonna let anybody tell me no because I paid the price to finish design school and so forth. And I came back into Washington practice. And, but everybody that was there with me wasn't, didn't have all, everything lined up to be have the prowess for the field. The field is difficult. And you have to have, you have to have a grit to be a designer. Forget being a designer of color. Everybody, the business, it's competitive. It's um, it's full of rejection, full of it. And what's hard to navigate is, am I being rejected because, you know, I'm a woman, I'm black, I'm this, I'm short, I'm what, what, what? No, it's just competitive. I've never, it's just one of the toughest fields. So then you layer it with, well, could it be because I'm a woman? Or could it be because of gender? Could it be because of this? You don't know what it is, but nonetheless, the negative force is there. And I've always had a gifted constitution to say, no, well, bring it on. (laughs) Yeah, no, and what else you got? What else you got? You know, and I'm like, okay, because if you're gonna wipe me out, I've been gone. What else you got? That was your best shot? I've been, you know, my, my daughter says, Ma, you're just too cocky, full of yourself. I said, Yeah, but I survived this stuff. And so when I was your age, you know, I just never took no for an answer. And so, and I believe deeply, I've had a you I've had an incredible gift. You got to know your gift, Professor Moses. And when you can lock in it, like even Jay-Z says, and Tyler Perry says, you know, there isn't anything that I've done. That's what they both say. If you see the little TikTok clips and things, there's anything special of what I've done. And Jay-Z says, you know, I found my gift. And I always say, if God gave you a gift, what you do back with it is your gift to God. And if you go to the grave and didn't do anything with it, not like he didn't give you anything to work with. Now he gave me something to work with in rugged times of exclusion and racism and prejudice and everything else you could imagine. And then, you know, look at me, look at me. You know, I mean, I'm every day now, like, oh, well, you're mixed. Well, there was no being mixed back then. You had one drop, you were black. You know, so I had to work my way through identity. I had to work my way through, see my mom over my shoulder, this gorgeous woman who, you know, her. My birth certificate says she's Negro. Is my mother Negro? My mother is Filipino Asian. <laughs> you know, I had to work my way through this insanity of culture and politics. And why? Because I believed from the bottom of my heart that I had something special when it comes to art and design. Crazy, you know? 
And all of my, I love all my friends because they picked us all up. But all my girlfriends are lawyers. <laughs> Everybody went to Radcliffe and Harvard, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, because you know you're going if you're going to go and be second generation. Because most of my friends are second generation. Their parents mostly all came out of Howard. We're from DC. You know, so they came for us and they all got, you know, Ivy League education. Everybody went to Radcliffe before it was hard. All my girlfriends are lawyers, a couple of doctors, you know, and I'm sure everybody looking at me side eye. Sure, wants to be an artist. <laughs> you know, so my dad said, Well, girl, if you're going to do it, be great. Go down fighting. And so, you know, I've had the grit for it. You got to have the grit for it. And that's, that's, that's God in me telling me, you, I don't know what season you're made for. I don't know what reason, but you got to keep going until you find this thing, you know, and that you can be this thing and live it out. And so with my whole heart, I refuse to take no, Professor Moses. Even today, I refuse to take no. It's a little easier for me now, but because I fit in a lot of places and I keep finding unique, you know, unique qualitative differences. You know, that's also a part, you know, of the journey everybody's doing this. So what makes you so unique, Miller? You know, so you've got to find your points, your points of differentiation, and you got to work with it. You know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't fall from the sky because again, the gift of God is easy. What you do with it, that's what's difficult. And you can't give up until you get there. Because I'm scared. If I give up, God's going to say to me one day, wake up and says, Miller, are you finished? I'm like, uh, anything else you want me to do? <laughs> Are you finished? Are you giving up? And you know, the minute I say I'm done, it says, okay, well, time's up. I don't need you anymore if you think you're finished or are you going to finish the race I gave you? And I think that also has a lot to do with, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm religious and I'm theologically trained. So I've got, a, I've got something inside of me that says, girl, you better finish. I'm going to make a way where there's no way. And you finish, <clears throat> finish the assignment. So Professor Moses, finish the assignment. One of my favorite things you did in the forward you wrote for us, Cheryl, was you grounded that in like this historical relevance of the work that you, that you have done. And also the importance of doing this work in community. And I was wondering if you could talk about the times that you were wanting to do this in community and there wasn't any to do it with, or maybe um, there were times where there was more community to do with it. I imagine it shifted over the time that you've been doing it. Not really. We had community were maybe a few that you knew. You know, so in DC, there were a few black designers. Okay. And I've written about Carol. Carol Porter was with the Post. If you go back to my first article, my, my friend Michelle Cobb, Spellman. No, Michelle Renee Cobb now. And I lecture, you know, she's in my first, when I lecture with Professor Sutton about um, Black women in the business, the history. Um, she was one of the first, um, she was the first Black uh, female art director for Sports Illustrated. Um, and so, and in DC, a lot of people don't know, um, but I was there. <laughs> um, uh, David Rice's group, um, he start, everybody thinks he started in Philadelphia, uh, the organization of uh, black graphic designers. I think that's what it is. He started in DC. And so we had, we had a few of us just trying to, um, you know, there were a couple of designers. DC is a government town, so it wasn't great for a lot of work. But those that were good, we had work. All right. So I worked for the networks, I mean, for the local television. Um, and a few of my colleagues worked television. Um, a lot of government work, association work. But the only community we had back then was just a, a few of us. And the rest were people that wanted to enter in, but they didn't have, they didn't have the experience, they didn't have the education. They came in with, which gave me some of this, what I could write about, the disenfranchisement that I was experiencing. My friends, I, I would have portfolio reviews weekly. Um, it's always been the same. Ms. Miller, can you refer me? Ms. Miller, can you, you know, um, review my portfolio? Can you refer me to anybody? You know, any jobs? And, oh my God, I've been doing this 50 some odd years. And so the seeds of my 
loving people to keep going. You know, I got some great designers that will say they stopped by. I hate to say mentor stuff, you know. And that's why I always tell you, Professor, they don't call me abuela, nana, granny. Call me auntie. I'm an auntie to a lot of you guys. And my eldest are about, um, they're in their mid-50s now. And, I, you know, I start talking to everybody about retirement. And, you know, um, we opened up with, girl, better travel, do everything your knees want to do, you know. I don't know how many of us surviving have lived through this to tell you what the end game is. So the longer I live in this and the more I do, the more I have to tell you, you know, um, because you want to, you do want to prepare yourself to some passageways. Mm -hmm. And there are some very strategic passageways that as a black designer, you, you must, you must cross them or you like I told, um, a new a new colleague I said you better cut you at a you're at a crossroad or you'll be a barber. Okay. So let's look at the reality of this. Or you'll be a beautician. Okay. So we've gotta we've gotta move through certain passageways. And they're not that many of us. I'll never say that I'm the only one, but they're not that many of us who can say I started at the beginning and I went through a whole story of this. I started when I was 17 and now I'm 70. I should be able to tell, you know, I should. And, you know, and with my industry accepting me, you know, to this measure of voice, I should be able to say a little thing or two. Make sure you go see the world before your knees give out. <laughs> I should be able to tell you that, you know, and go use up all your frequent flyer points as fast as you can. I should be able to tell you that. But so the answer to your question, I didn't think much about that community because I'd always been alone. And when I got to New York, there were only a few designers and Michelle, I just, she was on one of my talks this morning. Um, she gave me a piece of job at a very strategic time. I write about this. I, you know, I have my own book coming out and I just lay out and map out the history. Okay. So the early eighties, New York, I found myself in New York after a full blown uh, broadcast career in DC, you know, um, my husband got a corporate job. One day he came home and said, one move to New York. I said, what? <laughs> We're doing what? You know, he finished following a man. Lord of mercy. <laughs> I found myself following a man. I found myself in New York without a plan. All right then. <laughs> and so I hit the streets in New York and I met Michelle at a very strategic time. And that's what's so exciting when I tell these stories, um, Professor Mercer, that it's always synoptic and parallel to something that you know. So I came into New York City when Basquiat and Warhol were downtown Chelsea. And they had opened up down there to the studios and the artists because the rents and stuff. I was there. I was there when Halston and 50, Studio 54, 1982. And I got thrown into New York City without a plan, except I got a man who's been with me since I was 16 with this. Can you believe that? That's a whole nother story. Really? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Since senior prom, I've been with him. Okay. <laughs> and now it's, and now it's, you know, I love it because, you know, he's my cameo. You'll see he travels with me. He takes me. And uh, I have had family support. You know, you don't, you want to have family support. So, you know, Miller, you know, make sure I, I get where I'm going, if not take me, you know. So you'll see every now and again, um, you know, our selfies with him. And we're, we're with, you know, he, he, he's, Mil Miller takes care of me with this. And he bought me my first drafting table. And, um, yeah, back then where it was wooden, I had wooden T-square. Oh, oh, please, don't tell me about this. <laughs> you know, and I love him because he's like, Cheryl, here's a coupon from Best Buy. You got to go get a new computer, you you know. And I'm like, you know what? You're right, Miller. I need a new computer. And But my mind goes back. You bought me my first wooden drafting table and wooden T-square. Who knew what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so the community I had was my family and one or two other friends that were in the business. And um, that was it. And so I had pretty much learned to be alone. The anomaly of, you know, I hear the kids, I'm the only one. I'm like, well, that's good. When I walk in the room, I'm the only one, you know? And, you know, and I got this, I got this little mixy look kind of thing like, yeah, well, everybody, you know, I'm part Filipino, I'm part indigenous, I'm part black. It's all in me my, from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. And when you walk in, the first thing when I walk in, is this element of, 
yeah, you got to get past that. And so immediately, you know, I've learned to say things that make give people like, what is that? What is it look? Mm-hmm. Like the first thing I do is say, well, you know, my mother, my mother was Filipino Creole, which <laughs> explains half the size. I'm only this tall. <laughs> okay. But then when I tell you I'm African-American and Indian, and it'll tell you why I'm this wide. So, you know, after that, my hairdresser knows everything. You know what I'm saying? And it's just like, well, you're the cutest little thing, Mrs. Miller, Professor Miller. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm a cute old lady. I got it. I know. <laughs> so you work with it. You work with it. And so about the community thing, I graduated with this crazy thesis because they wouldn't let me design. I got into practice. They wouldn't let me do the thesis. I mean, they wouldn't let me do a design project because I had too much design information. That'd be too easy. And so you hear me say it all the time. Like, you know, Miller, no design project for you. I said, I can die design school and I can't design the project out of here. What? Yeah, they called me and A. Tom Manassi was the chair, make a contribution to the industry. And then you'll hear me talk about, you know, my relationship with um, the acclaimed. Dr. Leslie King Hammond and how I know her, you know, she's been my academic coach 52 years at least, 52, 53 years. She's been my academic. I'm writing this. I'm doing that. What do you think, Doc? You know, I called her up and I said, Dr. Leslie, these people are not letting me design my, I can't graduate. I said, I, I said, I got to write what I know. So let's make this piece of scholarship. And so this community didn't formulate until that article dropped. So the 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 sock um the um the uh scholarship from the thesis burdened me. It burdened me. I'm like, Cheryl, this is godly genius. Because Leslie pushed me across lanes of scholarship. She pushed me. She would not accept not one. I was like, are you making me write a PhD, doctor? What are we doing here? She pushed me. Uh, And I learned so much from her. So we, and this is without Google search or anything. So, you know, I I traveled to, as I can remember, archives and repositories. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm down there with the Library of Congress in in Washington of Access. I'm in New York. And so Yale... There was a whole lot of, she's, I'm in New York now, New York Library, and she is just pushing me. Now she's helping me because she says, uh, go find this person's work and go find that person's work. But she wouldn't tell me what of that work. So just go find that author, you know. So uh, anthropologists, a sociologist, and, you know, um, political scientists, and this, that, and the other. And um, she says, that's not a, this is not a design. You've got to, you got to have some other conversation and you have to hear scholars. And, and Leslie pushed me to the research plus um, the demand the way Pratt required us to write. Oh my God, it was Dr. Moses. We had a book. And what's exciting about all of this, I saved all those records and that all, all of my backstory and all my articles and interviews, everything is at my collection at Stanford. I saved everything, cataloged everything. Um, I interviewed, you know, old cassette recordings, things for all of this scholarship that I was doing. I became uh, a real lover of, sure, you're going to prove what you're saying. You're just not going to say you woke up and you know this, you know, you know this fairy tale. And so she did the first leg of teaching me how to do scholarship. And that that thesis was the thesis that just came, keeps giving in my life over and over again as if nobody else ever wrote another piece, that piece. And Martin, you know, it haunted me by the time I'd started the office. And I said, I, I got to get this story out of here. I know what's going on. It's in this book. And that's when print opened up in the article, Black Designers Missing in Action, um, the story of it, 1987, and my first editor and the whole incredible what they did with me to write that article. And to bring out the fact that I'm a trade art, uh, article trade writer, and um, immediately, see, we didn't when when things dropped. It wasn't like social media. So in New York City, the main design magazines dropped whatever their drop date. They would be all over. So print would drop by lunchtime. So they'd be at Grand Central Station. They'd be on the corner, you know. So that you know, just like the New York Times in the morning is dropped, you know. So the magazines. Com- 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 
uh, graphics, communication arts, print, you know, um, um, these were the big publishers of, you know, the New York designers and everybody that want to be, okay? And so this article, um, October 1987, October, I seem to get published in October because it's an academic issue always. My articles seem to all appear in October, okay? Um, and uh, by lunchtime, my phone is ringing off the hook and I had a studio. Okay, I mean, it, this was not freelance out of my bedroom window. I had a studio. I had two, I've had two studios in New York City. Okay, and doing it in New York, I'm a businesswoman. I had to learn, I had to learn how to make cash flow out of design to keep, you know, my employees, New York taxes, New York City taxes, you know, all the kinds of things that, you know, it's just not a freelance business with a 1099 form, you know, and so, um, yeah, I learned I learned to do business in New York. So the community didn't formulate until Carolyn Hightower was the uh, president of AIGA. Steve Heller was, um, he did the tabloids for AIGA, but he was an art director for the News, New York Times. Uh, uh, John Morning had his own uh, annual report practice, and a few of them, all, all, all of them, Michael Beirut, um, uh, a lot of them who were in AIGA, but it was Carolyn Hightower. That thing hit and my phone, it zoomed me. You'll see it. it, it's the truth. I hit a national platform so fast I didn't know what happened. And I've been there ever since. And, and that's why now, like when I teach and I'm with the kids and the young scholars, I said, right, take this thesis, I know what it is to do a thesis. So I get capstone invitation, you know, lecturer, crit. Can you come teach a class? I just did um, last semester. I was with Art Center. Um, their graduate, um, they, have a, they have a prep kind of preparation thing before capstone. Um, yeah, there's a way to approach it if you wanted to usher your future. So the community didn't, I learned to live by myself. So, you know, were we hanging out? trying to fight like the Black Panthers. <laughs> Not that I know of, or I wasn't invited to the game. I just said, look, I got to work on this. Y'all can go figure that. Spin that web if you want. I got I to gotta compete. I got I to gotta figure it out. You know, so I've been a loner with it. it and, and then the community seemed to forge through. Right here is where I learned in the, right here is where I learned um, one of my references in your forward. One of the first, either in 1991 or 1993, the AIGA, Carolyn Hightower, they got a grant um, to start the minority task force for the industry. And you'll see her picture and it's 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 recorded. LCY Cross, best known for unteaching racism and um, diversity, equity and inclusion consulting. Jane Elliott and Elsie Cross, were mid-century mid peers. Elsie was one of the first, if not the first and only black woman to be a DE&I um, -E -E consultant to corporations in New York City and beyond. And she started writing. She was one of the first to start writing about unpacking racism and especially in corporate America. and unthinking it, undoing it. And um, she worked, you know, we became, she's passed on now, but we became colleagues. And she was there with the beginning um, with the AIGA diversity, you know, department and, and so forth. She was one of the first consultants to come and would lecture at the conferences and so forth and so on. So this concept that you all are working with, it has a history because we've been around this before, which was the point that we started out like, okay, so now we're gonna do DNI. But DNI started with equal opportunity. It's been the equal opportunity office. It's been the social responsibility office, same office, same issue. The names just, buzz names just keep up, up ticking, right? So now it's DNI and you know, it's just corporate language. So in the eighties, when I got to New York, early eighties, uh, I moved to New York in 1982. 
a couple things were going on. Uh, there's a book. How did or there's an article? I think it's Glover advertising. How did blacks get in the advertising name? Well, Roy Wilkins, NAACP, New York City, the Urban League. There was this push: if black folks are going to drink your liquor, smoke your cigarettes, eat your hamburgers, ingest your Coca-Colas, you're going to give us money. You're going to put us in your ads. We, you know, Dorothy Hayes' group, there were a few sprinkling, working, and George Olden, yeah, but except for George and a few others that, you know, a few years, 10, 15 years in front of me, they were in the back of a few agencies. You couldn't come out in New York. You couldn't come out front to work with the clients. So the initiatives, you know, there's a lot of this in my own book coming up. You know, I talk about the history of this and NAACP, the Urban League, Roy Wilkins. Okay, they're pounding on the ad council. Oh, no, you're going to put us in ads. You're going to give us money and you're going to you're going to give us money to have our own agencies. And we're going to uh, come out from the back in front of the clients. This just didn't happen, Professor Moses and Mercer. Is this sort of like the repertory uh, sort of concept that you were talking about? Like after these horrible things happen in our country, we kind of had this uptick of reparations, Reparation. of like trying to undo some of that or like, it's almost like a, a cycle of abuse is yes. what it feels like. It's <laughs> it's like we, we abuse you, we do this horrible thing, everyone sees it and then we like, oh, actually, you know, we actually are really nice. Like, here you go, be in our ads, you know? No, but there was a fight. It wasn't, no, it was a fight to get in the ads is what I'm telling you. Mm. Mm -hmm. okay? There was advocacy to, to make sure that we were in business and represented. Mm -hmm. And thus, uh, back then you could still have uh, cigarette ads. So this is the place where you see all the gentlemen, mostly gentlemen with their Afro coiffed, you know, they're, they're smoking Marlboro. Marlboro man becomes black. Okay. And um, McDonald's and Burger King have it your way. You know, my lectures and all of this is all full of this. It just didn't happen. It doesn't, it just didn't happen. There was a push for this presence. And so when we talk about community, the AIGA and the Ad Council, you know, they started by the advocacy and the push and the sense to do right. See, the other thing is that social responsibility back in that, it was all corporate citizenship. The only area of affirmative action was jobs and schools and things. So, you know, the small ad agencies that you had to just be a good citizen to say, okay, I'm going to do people right. And the Hispanic community then was the predominantly the Puerto Rican community. So, you know, the and then the Asian community was primarily the visual was it was the Chinese. Okay, so it was pretty monochromatic, black, white, Puerto Rican, Chinese. And this is coming out of the civil rights era and media and advertising and design and all of that. So, you know, I hit New York with this press of one, women in business initiatives with the state of New York. And two, there's this press for, I remember I got this beautiful book I did for Time Inc. They called me up. Um, it was the first book that they had highly regarded um, putting um, minorities and, and minority iconography in their corporate literature. And I did this beautiful book for Time Inc. And it was, we want you to make a beautiful corporate book um, exhibiting um, our minority community or our sensibility to it. And I rode this wave and I got in. I, you know, I was, I had a, I had, I had a lease. I think that was a qualifier. Okay, so what, Cheryl, what made you, what, what made you successful in business? Well, in New York City, there's a lot of ways uh, to do artwork. But the real respect, okay, is if you had a firm. And I'll be honest, my husband backed me, you know, and um, the other thing that I always talk about is that you, you'll see one of my 
logo sheets around. See the image behind this poster here? You know, the symbols and stuff. Everybody does procreate and, and like your cover and all of that. Right, dressed up my hand with my eyes closed. Okay. Um, and you had to have a camera for that. You just couldn't, you know, it wasn't on a mouse and a skew and a pull and a top and a turn. And it started with, you know, I leased at, at least a few stat cameras. And in New York City, you had to have a room for that. You had to have a room for your bed in your apartment and a room in your studio or your firm for your camera. Because that logo sheet that's floating around, that's all by hand. That's, that's the Herb Lou Ballin and Tom Canese and Tony Despina crafting. Okay. And there were two or three of us that were, you had to have a camera. So, you know, I might be one of the few designers that have logo sheets because you had to have a camera or you stayed behind on your job and did it while everybody left or you bought your own paper and used somebody's camera in chemistry. But I had to have a camera. That camera required its own room, like a dark room. And it's the it was the size of like a, a large, refrigerator turned horizontal, like a freezer turned hard, right? And then it had lights. You can look them up, stack cameras. The lights had to open all the way up. We had this halogen light for copying art, okay? So you had to have a room that would let the lights come all the way out, depending if the camera's going in and out, the lights would go, right? So you had to have that space. You had to pay for that space. That's That was a space for a studio in New York. Can you imagine? And then you had to have your own electricity for that. Okay, so I had to run my own electricity. I had to have the space just for the camera, nothing else. Okay, then I had to have the maintenance, the lease, the paper. The paper was double. Okay, so to do one positive required. So that image back there, that one image, I would have to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, positive, negative, positive, negative, clean up, shoot, clean up, right back and forth, back. I could use a pack of paper to get one logo. And don't try to do anything fancy with all of the swirls and all of that. <laughs> no swashes allowed. No swashes. And, well, no, if, if you you had to do swashes if you were going to be competitive, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and competitive with, with Carnese Studio, mm -hmm. okay? Right? So, you know, folks call me feisty now. I've been through a little something-something. <laughs> Well, okay. So you've talked about like this historical, the historical aspect of, of your work and where it was situated culturally during that time. And so we know, like you said, you still feisty, you still out there, you doing what you're doing now. And so, we you know, we talk about collective liberation in the last chapter of our book. And I'm wondering, um, you know, what are some of the practices that you lead with now as a practitioner and now as an educator too, you know, now that we're living specifically in this time period where all of these things are under attack, what sort of liberatory practices do you incorporate um, in your work, both, you know, education-wise and as a designer? Well, first off, I write. And honestly, when I write, um, it is, look, there are a lot of writers, but I have found my qualitative unique voice. And I don't write for everyone. I've turned down when you write, I'm like, yes. <laughs> um, it's important. So collaboration for me is when someone asks me to write with them. Mm -hmm. Because I don't have a book yet. Uh, and I haven't been in a rush with that, but it's coming. Okay. And I mean, I just, you know, the book's been finished and it's it's going through its process. And I just got a glimpse at it. And I'm like, it filled my heart with, oh, my God, Dr. Cheryl Dean Miller. Ain't nobody in it but Cheryl. OK. And 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 my viewpoint out loaded with footnotes. I'm just not telling you bedtime stories. So I'm really excited about that. But I believe that it's important for me to write with you all. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm so excited about being invited into your conversation. Um, because I know, like Jane Elliott's work, if you follow her and Malcolm X's work, Malcolm X, you know, we had, we had a couple of voices. And 
Malcolm X it remains brilliant on YouTube University, but Martin Luther King was easier, okay, in his message to embrace at a particular time of resistance and mm -hmm. disruption. Mm -hmm. But if you go back to the brilliance of Malcolm X, you talk about somebody around the rodeo can tell you what's next, he'll tell you. And I'm fascinated at a second look with him. So one of the things I think is really important for me to do is do just what I'm doing. I've got a chance to think about it. And that is, I've got a textbook coming out in January, 2025 for my course. I have my primary book uh, that I guarantee you that is scheduled to come out this time next year. Mm -hmm. Um. I was very, I'll be honest, I was very protective about um, the process and taking my time in all of the different stages. And I'm like, I am not in a rush. And worst case, my daughter will find the manuscript in a in a um in an envelope. My mom said she didn't want you to publish. <laughs> but this is her book she left me. Okay. And worst case, I was prepared. Daughter, it's in a, you know. So, but thank God, I'm gonna see it happen in my lifetime. And um, it's uh, it, it's scheduled, and I really my heart and soul is in this book. This one is, it's got some very unique. I I really, you know, it's not about my book, but it's your book. So you ask me what I'm doing. So I've got the I've got the books. I think it's really important when I'm invited um, to to write in these anthologies because I'm I'm writing my footnotes that um, when I'm invited, I'm honored. And that's one of the things that I'm doing now. I don't, I, I don't knock on a door and tell myself. I every day I get invitations. I only that minimizes my frustration because you already know what you're going to get if you invite me. You do. So I don't have to knock on the door and get rejected, and then worry about well, why did you reject me? Am I this? I'm too outspoken. Am I this? Am I that? Am I back? Am I short? Am I? You know what is it? What is it? What is it? I don't go through all that. I go through. What you see is what you get with Miller. And when I, you know, if I if I make anybody upset or too forthright or whatever, so just write it off. I'm a cranky old lady. Just do it. You know, just <laughs> give me a pass. I'm giving you all a pass. Give me a pass. <laughs> give me a pass. <laughs> so, okay. so there's no middle ground with Miller. It's like I either in or out, you know, either I'm up, I'm either to the table or I'm not. And I've learned how to accept and work with not being at the table. And that's where a lot of this falter, the youth, you know, young look, get yourself your folding chair. You're not at the table, get yourself a folding chair, you know? I got my folding chair t-shirt, you know? Get your folding chair. And 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 do you, come on, you know? It's okay, it's okay, you you know? And I learned that kind of good from New York. There's so many, I'm like, Cheryl, if you don't stand up, okay, uh, you'll you'll be run over. And these messages, you know, part of it is, yeah, by Cheryl Miller. And the other part is it, it's totally mission for everybody else. So when I'm invited to write, it's an honor. Um, and I'm always going to bring some kind of lived experience, you know, historical note that, oh, I didn't know that, Miller. I'm like, yeah, I know. Or I'll say, I'm not the one. I've said, I'm not the one. I, I don't, you know, I appreciate your work and your invitation, but um I uh, I don't know anything about that. I mean, I know a lot of things, but when I don't know something, I'll, I'll be the first one to say, no, well, I don't know anything about that. I'm not the one, and maybe I can refer you, you know, to somebody who does. So, and also writing with you all um, upon invitation is allowing me to whisper like Leslie did to me. Uh, go look over there. You didn't go to the card catalog over there. I didn't know that. I know, but I'm telling you, go over there. You're going to find a piece of research. So uh, when I'm writing and sharing that collaborative space, I'm helping the, you know, the key author um, dig into research that, and, and also perspective. You know, I had to pick up my own training for scholarship and I learned, I learned the, you know, if I'm bright, if you will, or if I've got some kind of edge or something, 
Um, studying theological work is not Bible college. And so I went to one of the top seminaries in, in North America. They don't pride themselves on making ministers. They pride themselves um, on, on making um, historians and scholars. So I wandered into Union Theological. They were my client. And I, next thing you know, I had an MDiv, but I was trained in, you know, it was one thing to have Dr. King and it was another thing to learn how to do it myself. So I lean into that as my terminal degree because based on what I was doing, I didn't need a PhD. I don't need a PhD to teach design, not back then, you know. And nor not really, I have a terminal degree for that. Yeah, so what's unique is uh, everybody knows I'm theologically trained, which gives me a dimension into critical thinking that just my design degree could never. That was the depth that Dr. King was pushing me. Um, and so theological studies does give you this intersection um, that I put it simply put, I answer questions that people don't even think to ask the question for. <laughs> you know, I didn't think I didn't think of that. You answered a question I didn't even think of. Right. And that's that's that is a part of the dimension of theological work when you're trained to do history and scholarship. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in the alcoves uh, and, and you know, uh, between Columbia and unions, uh, libraries and things and learning, learning what I do. And so now I write, I lean into that and I have something to write about, you know, the experience of art and design and, uh, and the culture of the politics and all of it. And so writing with you all is extremely because you, you're taking me to places, you know, it's not that I, I can't go, but y'all go, you know, let MIT, you know, take me along with you. I don't have to be, I, you know. So leave a question. Yeah, yeah. So, so what I'm saying is writing with you all helps. And then I give you all, you know, you all are nice enough to ask me, you know, auntie, what do you think? I'm like, you know, you missed that. Oh, really? I'm like, yeah. And then you come back. And you come back and say, oh, my God, it was there. I said, yeah, well, if you're as old as I am you're, and you were, you were awake, you know, um, you would have read that article. And, no, and I've got some books here. I'm like, oh. and I'm into W.E.B. Du Bois. Oh, my God. Wait. Yeah. Oh, and there's a reason why. It's not the visual data. Oh, no. So you have to, you know, I got a lecture now that's touring and people. I love it. I'm getting invitations now. I was trying to do a tour for Black History Month. But I got people calling me, can you do that before? And I'm like, well, yeah. And this is, I did this, I did, what happened is the Smithsonian asked me to do a lecture on the impact of um, W.E.B. Du Bois on my work. And um, it's not even a discussion. It just so happens that he made charts. Um, but we've been asking everyone to, to think radically just for a moment. So without the hindrance of thinking about like money or thinking realistically or politics, what would collective liberation look like for you? It would look like we have, now we do have a church saying, it's level at Calvary's cross, which means at the end of the day, we all bleed and we're all gonna be at the cross. And no matter what we've done in life, we're gonna be there, all of us, if it were fair. I could be in glory. In other words, I didn't have any work yet to do in life and God would have no need of me. I would be resting with my parents. Or I would be retired in my home in the islands where my mother's buried. Painting plenary scenes of Megan's bed and left alone in peace if it were fair. I would have retired from executive VP of design or something or the other with all of the awards and I'd be doing watercolors on my at the beach when it's fair, when equity is fair, and this modernist Eurocentric tug of war doesn't try to tell me no that I don't belong. Oh, I still get that I don't belong. I'm like, you got to be kidding! I don't belong. I still get that, but. Good knows if I can survive and sustain from the time I was your age and younger. Now I say, oh, just chalk it up. I'm an old lady. Just let me have my knee in my back. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
and take take me or leave me, love me or otherwise. You know, if it were fair, girl, I'd be retired or or expired. But I'm living to see it happen in you. Make me proud. Make me proud, both of you. Make me proud. Do it. Do it. Please do it. And whatever I can do to help you, I will do it. And those that are against me, if you don't know me by now, just leave me alone. Because I got a saying, Professor Moses. <laughs> if you don't want me writing about if you don't want me writing about you now, you should have treated me better then. Because <laughs> everybody, everybody wants to publish me. And I'm like, okay, all right. And I had, wait, I had IBM, you know, IBM when I was the scholar with them, we had, they have a medium article, you know, thing, medium, everybody got to write. So a part of my contract with them was what I write, you know, some articles. So I wrote this, so I'm like, sure, you know, that's what I do. I write, I write design articles. So I wrote this user-friendly article. And I only once in my life did I ever get a draft get kicked back. And that was the first time I wrote for print. My editor says, Cheryl, let me show you how to write. So Tom Goss said, this is nice, but let me, I, just tell me once, okay? And so he taught me how to write a magazine article. I've never had an article kicked back on me. It's like, how fast can we get another one? You know, it's like, so this one I wrote for, and, and so um, IBM said, Cheryl, uh, that's too nice. That's a big part. <laughs> I'm I'm writing a, uh, you know, I'm not going to offend the article. I'm I'm writing IBM here, and they kicked it back. Said, you got anything with more grit? I said, oh, you really want me to tell you the truth? So, like I say, if you don't want me write, writing about you now, you should have treated me better then. No, we're gonna go. They got a better article. <laughs> they got a better article than my my politically correct corporate view of whatever it was I was designing. I said, oh, that's, mm -hmm. oh, that's too nice. We want some of your grit, okay? And that's what I'm honoring that, and I'm excited about that people really don't mind me telling them the truth as long as I have a footnote. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm just not making up fairy tales. Can you prove that? I'm like, yep, I can prove it. So most of the things I write, you know, I can prove it. And that's what I'm excited about. You always hear me yeah. say, Oh, I'm not compiling footnotes. I make footnotes. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's an honor to be with you ladies and, you know, your professionals, your scholars, however you want to call. You know, I'm not going to offend anybody in this hour. You know, <laughs> we, just, just we do it. Just do it. Be it. <laughs> we are, are definitely not offended. Um, and we are the ones who are in awe and inspired by your work. And we just want to again yeah. say thank you so much for sharing space with us for writing our forward and for continuing to pour into us in the ways that you do. 